Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome to Bible Prophecy Talk. My name is Chris. It's good to be with you. Just a couple show notes before we get started. We do have a lot to get into today. So yeah, check out the website prewrathmovie.com. There you can find resources to learn about pre-wrath. Also donate to the upcoming film project. We are almost to 50% of the goal, which is really awesome. So the first thing I wanted to talk about was how good of a deal eternal life really is when you think about it. And I think that if you ask me uh, what I think eternal life will look like, I'd probably give you a fairly biblical idea of what it's going to look like. But sort of in my heart of hearts, if you in my subconscious, I still sort of view it as like, oh, it'll be, you know, on the cloud somewhere, some some ghostly ethereal body in, in heaven for eternity. And, you know, you do things or whatever. I'd, very vague references to what would be going on. And that is more of a platitude in my mind. It's like, yes, I'll have eternal life in heaven but it's not real and certainly doesn't evoke any uh, thanksgiving. I mean, it does in sort of a, a very baseline way. But my point here is I think that if the more that we understand about what eternal life really is, the more we recognize, hey, we've just been given the thing that basically all the world has been uh, striving for since its inception. You know, this, this eternal life, we've just sort of been given it. Uh, and, you know, but what I, that I mean people trying to download their consciousness into AI and all the stuff we see in the modern times. Well, that's been going on for, for time immemorial with magic rituals and stuff, trying to download your consciousness into somebody else's body. They still do that today, basically in Satanism, but it's just demonic uh, stuff pretending to be the downloaded soul or whatever. But that's according to Russ Dizdar. I don't know. I've never actually had any experience with it. But anyway, they, the, the world wants it. We got it. And a couple things that I think really drive home the point. First of all, obviously, it's going to be in a real body. We know we're going to have a body like the body that Jesus had. Jesus spent 40 days on earth after his resurrection from the dead. We see that he was indistinguishable from a man. Nobody said, oh, look at that as an ethereal entity or whatever. I mean, uh, he ate several times, uh, appeared to enjoy food. That's something we can kind of take away. There are some things that are questions about the nature of the, our resurrection eternal bodies, whether they are a little bit supernatural. I mean, there was one instance where Jesus got into a locked room. We don't know if he picked the lock or walked through the wall or whatever, if he's sort of multidimensional or maybe that's possible. I don't know, but there's something interesting going on. Obviously, he he ascended into heaven and that could have been facilitated by angels, possibly. Maybe it was a Jesus-specific thing, or maybe that's something that we will be able to do. I don't know. There is some speculation there, but the main point I want to make about the body thing is that it's going to be a real body, the same way that we look at our hands and feet and perceive being alive. I mean, that's what we're talking about. That's the eternal life. It's a real eternal life. You're going to be here on earth, and that's the second part of this. You're going to be, as much as what the world wants eternal life to be is really what it is. The question really becomes, well, what are you going to be doing during that time? And here a little bit of speculation does start to, to come into play. We know a few things. We know there is some a little bit of confusion in my mind about the millennium versus the eternal kingdom and how all that works out. But we know in the grand scheme of things, the New Jerusalem will be our home base at the very least, this huge, massive city that will be more or less uh, around Jerusalem. Of course, it'd be much bigger than Jerusalem currently is, much bigger than the, most of the Mideast currently is, but it will be our home base. And I'm sure there are pretty awesome things to do in that city. I don't know anything about that. We don't, we know, well, we know a little bit about it, but uh, from the end of uh, the book of Revelation and a few other places, 
But it says that these things that defile the city can't go into the city. I take that to mean that some of these people still in their first life can't go into the city, but that we can go out. Uh, there's a little bit of speculation there. We know at the end of Gog Magog, there are uh, weapons that need to be buried for uh, and, and bodies that need to be buried. So the earth still needs some kind of husbandry. I mean, it's not perfect. There are clearly things for us to do. Or maybe that particular one is done by the, the people still in their first life. Or maybe we're sharing the, the responsibilities. That in itself is interesting that there is at least some possible interplay between those people in their first life and the people in the city. If you look at Gog Magog, it says very specifically, after the thousand years are completed, then that's when the, the, Satan is able to, to gather enough people that have ill will against the city uh, to form an army. So... So things aren't perfect in the millennium. Isaiah also makes that clear, that it, things aren't just rosy. There's still enough, uh, when he's released, he has enough uh, people to to want to rebel against God. So there's possible ministry going on. There is, at least in the eternal kingdom, I think that you know we could probably go out and visit things. I mean, you've got eternity. You could probably go on vacations to wherever, you know, the Grand Canyon and, and everything else. I was just thinking about you know, what if my wife and I kind of went to our the place where we are right now, our our home, and took a trip every year or something to to our home? Probably wouldn't be here. It'd be a smoking ruin, or conversely, a uh, uh, a lush garden. But the hill would probably still be here, and we could say, you know, this is where we spent our life or our first life, anyway. Uh, I don't know. I mean, in, as far as hanging out with people, in my in this case, my wife or or whatever. I know it says that you won't have wives in that sense in heaven. I don't think that that's going to be a part of our thinking in terms of, you know, certainly sexual relations or anything like that, but it doesn't mean that there aren't going to be attachments and, and people that you know. Uh, David says that he will see his son in heaven. I mean, there are definitely relationships to be had, and you're probably going to maintain the, the same kind of people that you like and make new friends in heaven, probably people from all over the ages that you're going to have some really interesting friends and whatnot. But I think it even gets a little bit cooler if, in fact, things like I mean, what if there's more? Here's, I think, the concept is that what if history doesn't end? You know, I think that's a component of eternal life that makes us think, ah, eh, blah, blah, you know. Well, first of all, we know that there's something really cool happening, at least in the millennium, that whole Gog Magog thing or whatever. But then to, up until that point, and then after the eternal kingdom, though, we think, oh, you know, it's, everything's sort of all finished. And I suppose it is in a way. But what if it's not like finished, finished? What if there's more to this? universe what if whether what if we can fly what if we can take trips to to the moons of jupiter or or the the saturn's uh the the storm on jupiter and and have a vacation there that'd be pretty cool but i guess my point is that what if the world and the universe is there's more and god has a bigger and more expansive plan than we could ever even think what if there is life on other planets that he wants us to be a part of the ministry to or what if there is something bigger and awesomer. I mean, there's going to be angels and stuff that we're going to be dealing with on a regular sort of basis. I mean, the possibilities are just totally in endless as to what is really happening and what we're going to be a part of. I don't think that history will end. I also think that there is possibilities for, I don't know, if you were interested in science or archaeology and stuff like that, think of the opportunities and the things that would be available with the knowledge that you would now have. I mean, in, in other words, eternity is not going to be boring. It's going to be real eternal life, like what you always would think eternal life would be the greatest thing. It's really that plus awesome. Um, so I guess no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has comprehended what God has in store for those that love him. So 
Just a thought. So the next random thought I'll try to get through quickly. It was just mostly to point out how much power you as the podcast and radio listeners have over uh, the podcasters and radio personalities themselves. It's a disproportionate power that you have to convince them of their errors. And there are several things at work here. The first reason is because of the pride of the podcaster or radio host. And what I mean by that is that, rightly or wrongly, the person who is podcasting will perceive an email from a listener slash fan of theirs as uh, having more weight because they are a fan of theirs. And after all, if they're a fan of mine, well, they must be you know, smarter or better or whatever than the average person. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying that that's probably true across the board. There is also another dynamic with podcasting that and radio shows where whether or not podcasters draw like personalities to that podcast or podcasters shape personalities or vice versa or a mixture of both or whatever, there is a sense that you, you oftentimes hear from people that you know just from their writing style, this person is very much like myself, you know? Um, so there is, there's a lot of that going on too. So that, that's another reason for them to take you more seriously than they do other people. Related to that, they would not have any reason to change uh, or challenge a presupposition that they may hold. And here, yeah, I am thinking about uh, pre-trib, pre-wrath stuff just because that's what's on my mind. But it can be literally anything and this still applies. In my situation, I did believe in the pre-trib rapture until a... At this point, anonymous emailer who was a fan of my show back then lovingly challenged me on some things. And, you know, I had no reason at that point to look into any other thing. I mean, I could, I saw, yeah, sure, books were out there and some, some people were against the pre-trib rapture, but I didn't care. You know, there's no reason for me to, to look into it for some random person not liking it. But here, an, a listener of mine has a question and I treated it like I do all the questions that I get. Somebody had a question. Oh, I'll have the answer for you. Let me do what I always did in my pre-trip days, which was go to some commentary at, of some person that I liked. I think in those days it was probably Chuck Missler. Found out what Chuck Missler had to say about it. Copy and paste it over there. That's the answer to the problem you were worried about. Probably Matthew 24 or something like that. And, uh, and they emailed back and said, yeah, but what about this, this, this? And I was like, hmm, you know, got me out of my comfort zone of like, Chuck Missler doesn't have anything on that. Hmm, I'm going to have to look this up myself. So there's a little bit of that going on. You can, as a ministry, change these podcaster and radio personalities' minds about everything because of that power that you have, especially if you want to stick with them. As far as whether or not they will read it, I think you have a pretty good chance of that too. I know every podcaster that I know of, as big as some of them are, they all read their emails and are pretty addicted to it as well. Uh, Rush Limbaugh, I heard him on a, a radio show the other day saying that he's the only one that even has the password for his emails and he reads all of them and answers them all himself, at least the ones that do get uh, read and answered. I would say that there is a volume situation there. and But you can hedge your bets knowing that they're probably going to read anything that's remotely interesting. So just write a good, uh, write a good subject line. Anyway, I'll just end this here, but all that to say that if you have something that you want to convince somebody of out there, you have the power to do it. I do think it's a ministry because, of course, you change these influencers. You change those that they influence. And, you know, what a what a wonderful thing it can be if we could uh, start to have a ministry of uh, uh, for those influencers about the things that they need to know. And to craft your messages to them in a good way. If it's a short thing, do some bullet points and a good subject line and, and, and make your arguments uh, easily to understand with good links and references or whatever. Okay, so that's all I had with that.
All right, let's move on to some Bible prophecy subjects. In this case, we're talking about, I guess the wheat and tares parable is the overarching theme of this, but we're going to branch off into a lot of different things. And I would say that I didn't really mean to have this topic this week. I had something else completely different planned, but this topic just kind of came up. And the more I looked into it, the more interesting it got. So this topic today has a lot to do with what we have been talking about, something I've been calling the fallout of Matthew 24, which is referring to because pre-tribulationalists have to change Matthew 24 verse 31, which I think is pretty clearly talking about the rapture. It's the lead up, the entire thing leading up to Matthew 24, 31. It's Jesus uh, returning every eye sees him. He gathers the elect uh, with his angels and a trumpet sound, uh, gathers them from four winds of the heaven to the earth. I would say that it's a very clear picture of what's happening in the obvious rapture passage, 1 Thessalonians 4. But because this happens after the tribulation and because there are signs leading up to it, two things that are pretty antithetical to the pre-trib position. And again, pre-wrath believes that this happens at some unknown point after the midpoint. We're not saying it happens at the end of the seven years. We don't really know. We know it happens after the midpoint, but we don't know when. Anyway, as we've been saying, because they changed that verse in verse 31 to mean Armageddon instead of the rapture, and technically they, they think it's Armageddon, and also because of the gathering, and there's no gathering at the Armageddon passage, they also need the gathering to be a separate thing, which they typically will make the in-gathering of Israel, which we'll probably get into more detail in another podcast. But really, they need verse 2431 to be two things, the Armageddon returning and the in-gathering of Israel. But because they do that, they have fallout with the rest of Matthew 24 and 25, which are all parables that Jesus gives mostly to say, hey, look at these signs. You need to be very careful. You need to watch for these signs. No one knows the day or the hour. And he goes into a lot of things. But those parables that Jesus gives are what causes the fallout. So, for example, because Matthew 24 or 31 is Armageddon, contextually, you now have to say no one knows the day or the hour of Armageddon, which is, of course, kind of absurd because uh, we are given exact dates as to when the 70th week ends. So we're in relationship to the midpoint or the beginning of the 70th week. You will actually know when Armageddon is. So that's one bit of fallout that modern scholars, as we've been discussing, have been trying to deal with just that one thing. Even just within Noah, we have more fallout because we've got the uh, given in marriage and given in marriage. And again, that means contextually before Armageddon. And this one is just really hard to get around for them because that the day before Armageddon, they didn't know. You know, no one knows the day or the hour. It's the day before Armageddon. The bold judgments. Read the bold judgments and tell me if you think that somebody could be given in marriage or, you know, just carefree, not knowing anything when the bold judgments are happening. And so that they would admit that's a problem. They don't really have a good solution for that. So that's another bit of, of fallout. But the aspect of this fallout that I want to talk about today is the section that talks about how two men are in the field and one is taken and the other is left. And two women are grinding at the mill and one is taken and the other is left. So the historical interpretation of this and certainly the pre-wrath view of this is that it's talking about the rapture. It's the nice normal understanding of this. It flows naturally from verse 31 to be talking about the rapture because verse 31 was talking about the rapture. But as we've been saying, because pre-tribulationalists have interpreted Matthew 24, 31 as Armageddon slash the ingathering of Israel, both of which happen at the end of the 70th week of Daniel, it means that this can't be the rapture in their view. So in their commentaries, they will suggest that it is talking about the wheat and tares parable, which they typically interpret as the, the sheep and goat judgment. Now, the sheep and goat judgment is something that 
happens uh, right before the millennium, basically. Think of it as the people that are alive after Armageddon that like are actually alive and have not died yet. They go through the sheep and goat judgment to see which one of them actually enters into the millennium alive. Uh, so it's a very, and it's talked about in, in the latter part of Matthew 25. So what they're about to suggest uh, by way of the wheat and tares parable is that this is referring to uh, the, the sheep and goat judgment. But what's interesting about that is that if you remember, the reason why they are having trouble with the no one knows the day or the hour and the marrying and giving in marriage and all the other problems with this is because they recognize that there is a contextual link between whatever you make Matthew 24, 31 be and these parables. In other words, that that's what this is ultimately talking about. Whatever you call the parousia, the coming that's in view in Matthew 24, really the entirety of Matthew 24, whatever you think that that is about, if you think it's a lead up to Armageddon or you think it's a lead up to the rapture, that's what you now are forced to talk about in the rest of these parables. But it's interesting that even in this exact same parable, they will say that this doesn't have anything to do with Armageddon or the ingathering of Israel. Now they've all of a sudden made it the sheep and goat judgment, which comes much later. In other words, they've abandoned their own hermeneutical principle of how to interpret this, where they have to be talking in their mind up to the leading up to Armageddon slash the ingathering of Israel. Now, all of a sudden, they're saying that this parable, which ends with watch, therefore, that you know not the day or the hour, is referring to the sheep and goat judgment. And the sheep and goat judgment, which is like after Jesus has been on earth, what, at least a month, uh, Armageddon is over, the bold judgments have been poured out, uh, it's all over, and nobody is going to question or care what the day or the hour of the sheep and goat judgment is. It makes no interpretive sense. The only reason that they're even grasping at straws here and have abandoned every normal way to interpret this is because it's so difficult to to interpret this as anything other than the rapture, because you've got two in the field, one taken and the other left, two women grinding, one taken and the other left. They can't have that be Armageddon, obviously. They can't even have it be the ingathering of Israel, obviously. So they've had to grasp at straws, and in doing so, and that's what this is really going to be about, they've had to make up a few doctrines. So let's talk about the wheat and tares parable, sometimes called the parable of the weeds. This occurs in Matthew 13. This is really the only occasion where this exact parable is uh, said. So you know the basic idea. Jesus tells a parable about uh, a guy that sowed good wheat in his field, but an enemy came and sowed some weeds among it. And the servants asked him, hey, what should we do about this? Do you want us, the weeds are growing with the wheat. What should we do? And just picking up in verse 29, but he said to them, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned but gather the wheat into my barn. We have an explanation of this parable later on, starting in verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, the field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin, all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Before we get started on the interpretation of this, I should say that 
pre-tribbers, along with post-tribbers, post-tribbers actually have a very big vested interest in how to interpret this particular parable. I mean, a big part of their scheme really relies on this section of scripture. So they will, they will make sure to teach this a certain way. But I would also say that in pre-tribulationalism, this is absolutely crucial to interpret as the sheep and goat judgment, which I'm going to point out later. I don't think it has anything to do with the sheep and goat judgment. It's the rapture and it's talking about the resurrection we're going to talk about in a minute. But they need it to be the sheep and goat judgment because if it's not, then they don't have anything in the rest of Matthew 24. Remember, they've already made a huge sacrifice in logic and interpretive principles by saying all of a sudden the one taken and the uh, another left and the two in the field and the women grinding is no longer talking about verse 31, which they agree it's supposed to be by the way that they, they uh, uh, interpret the rest of those parables. But all of a sudden this no longer has to do with that. And all of a sudden Jesus is talking about the the wheat and tares and sheep and goat judgment because the concept of one taken and the other left was so weird and it obviously can't be the rapture. So this really is their only option. So for them, at least the people that take this tact in, in, in interpreting Matthew 24, this parable has to be about the sheep and goat judgment. But I will show you that it really can't be about the sheep and goat judgment. One interesting thing before I get really into the details here is that I've always thought that one of the reasons that pre-tribbers like this, and really it is a big missing opportunity for them, is because of the angelic gathering here. Angels are gathering in this parable. Uh, they're gathering uh, the elect to hide them in the barn, and they're gathering the wicked into bundles and uh, burning them. And of course, in Matthew 24, 31, there's trumpets, there's angels, there's gathering of the elect and remember, they need that to be Armageddon, or they'll say it's the in-gathering of Israel. Problem there is that there's no angelic gathering of anything in Armageddon. The in-gathering of Israel has the word gather in it, but no angels are there. Thomas Ice proposes in his commentary, like, oh, clearly there must be angels that do it, because, uh, you know, he goes into this L Airlines thing that he proposes to make sense of the, he wants angels to be gathering the elect in the in-gathering, because it's not a clear, certainly not in the Bible. Um, and then alternatively, they, they would like angels, in this case, to be uh, part of the sheep and goat judgment. And yes, angels are like sitting on the thrones or whatever uh, during the sheep and goat judgment, but they're not gathering the, if they are, it's certainly not mentioned. So in other words, this angelic gathering, I've always thought they liked it because they plugged it into Matthew 24, 31, but they can't use it there because Matthew 24 specifically says it's the gathering of the elect. And here they're wanting to emphasize the gathering of the wicked people to judgment. So they literally can't use this one other instance of angelic gathering. Spoiler alert, the reason why it looks the same is there's angelic gathering here and there's an angelic gathering in Matthew 24, 31 and in 1 Thessalonians 4 is because they're all talking about the same thing, i.e. the rapture. Ah, but Chris, they would say this can't be the rapture because in this parable, it seems as though the weeds, the bad things are gathered first and then the wheat is put into the barn. And that's just not a good picture of the rapture because in the rapture, the, the wheat, as it were, is put into the barn first and then the, the wheat, the bad, the wicked people are either depending on if you look at the wrath of God as the fulfillment of the burning of the weeds or the great white throne judgment a thousand years later. In either case, it's not a good picture of the rapture if, in fact, we are to understand this as the, the weeds being gathered by angels first. Now, I'm actually going to make an argument that the wheat is, in fact, gathered in the barn before the burning of the weeds, 
But before I do that, I want to make what sounds like a cop-out argument, which is to simply say that in these parables of the kingdom, which constitute much of Matthew 13, there's a lot of different parables. The point of these is not to suggest the order of it. And I think you can make a clear case with that in the parable of the net, which is basically the same parable trying to do the same thing. And in that one, it says the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So there you could make a case, okay, the good are in that case gathered and put into containers first and then throw away the bad. But even there, I would say that's reading too much into that because really there's no order there or in the interpretation that follows. But in ours, there is a first, and that's an important aspect of this. It says, gather the weeds first and bind them into bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. The operative words in the text, though, and what's relevant in agriculture is the words to be burned. Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. There, if the burning is what's the important part, when does judgment happen, whether it's the day of the Lord or the, uh, the great white throne judgment? Here, it's not said. It's just that a binding and setting aside uh, was to happen. Now, in agriculture, Alan Kirshner makes the argument that in ancient Palestine, weeds were used as fuel and would often be bundled and used later. And that makes sense if they weren't going to waste anything. Why would you just want to have a bonfire in the middle of the field when you can use that later for starting fires or any number of things? But if it's talking about the rapture, which I think I can prove, and I will here in a moment, then it also makes sense because you have the marking of the beast happening before the rapture. That is to say that they are being bundled up and sort of set aside for burning later, right before the gathering into the barn. So, and that's all that's really said that's happened here is they've essentially been marked for burning later, but the first thing that happens is the gathering into the barn. Alan Kirshner has a blog post about this, and he says, the parable states the weeds are collected and tied first, but suggests they are to be burned later after the wheat harvest. Thus, if there is an intended sequence, the wheat is shown to have priority. The weeds are collected, tied, and placed to the side so as not to waste time burning them. But the task of harvesting is performed first, and only after the costly harvest is complete would the weeds be disposed of by burning them. In ancient Palestine, weeds were often bundled and used later for fuel, as were other agricultural scraps. He has a footnote there to a paper about that. In any event, it is best to build our eschatological chronology first from non-figurative passages. There is, I think, another really good way to show what this harvest is and what the order of the harvest really is in Revelation chapter 14. But it's a little bit complex and we're going to be uh, probably losing some people by then. So first I wanted to talk about something a lot more interesting related to this, which was how to show that this uh, parable, the wheat and tares parable, is in fact talking about the resurrection, which will lead us to a parallel passage in Daniel, which will lead us to the uh, conclusion that pre-tribulationalists have come up with a very interesting doctrine that's really, really close to absolute heresy just to avoid the rapture being slightly after the midpoint. It's really interesting, so let's get started. So this argument starts by reading in the parable we have been reading, the parable of the weeds. Let's start at the interpretation. Uh, Jesus says in verse 41, The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all that causes sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, 
Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. A couple things here. First of all, I would suggest that the weeping and gnashing of teeth and the fiery furnace are all pictures of the great white throne judgment, not the day of the Lord and certainly not the millennium, which is what you need this to be if you think this is the sheep and goat judgment. But my point here is actually in verse 43, which says, Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So this, this line about the righteous shining like the sun is a quote from Daniel chapter 12, which is really the key to all of this. And that's probably why it says, he who has ears, let him hear. Like I just quoted from the Old Testament. Why don't you go look that up and see how it applies to what we've been talking about. So in Daniel chapter 12, it starts off by saying, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who is charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those turn many to righteousness like stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up these words and seal the book until the time of the end. So Jesus quotes from this passage, which is a definite resurrection passage. There's a few of these in the Old Testament. Isaiah's got a few. Uh, you know, in Jesus's day, there was sort of a, a argument between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and different kind of viewpoints as to whether or not the resurrection even existed. Well, if you were a believer in the resurrection in the Old Testament days, you would have pointed to Daniel chapter 12. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt, and said, yeah, there's definitely going to be a resurrection. It says right there in Daniel. Well, Jesus quotes this passage about shining as the uh, the, the brightness of the sky above to point us to a resurrection passage, which is, of course, completely appropriate uh, because Jesus is talking about uh, angels gathering them in the barn, uh, which is a picture of at least 1 Thessalonians 4. Let's take Matthew 24 out of the equation. We've got angels gathering people in the uh, to, to save them from the day of the Lord, to get them out of the way of the wrath of God. So the short answer is, if you agree that Daniel 12 is talking about the resurrection, then the parable of the wheat and tares is not talking about the sheep and goat judgment. The angelic gathering into the barn is talking about the resurrection. It's talking about the rapture. In other words, because Jesus quoted from Daniel 12, and because Daniel 12 is talking about the resurrection, then the wheat and tares parable must be talking about the resurrection and not the sheep and goat judgments. Now, most theologians would agree that Daniel chapter 12 is talking about the resurrection, the resurrection that refers to us as believers as well as Old Testament saints. It's the resurrection, partially because of lines like everyone whose name shall be found written in the book, which is pretty inclusive if everyone means everyone and the book is the book of life. And, you know, this is definitely talk about the resurrection, i.e. the first resurrection, the resurrection of the just, as opposed to the second resurrection, the resurrection of the unjust, which occurs a thousand years after that. So that's what most theologians believe this to be referring to because of the obvious uh, uh, words there. But pre-tribulationalists can't believe that because of that line that comes before this, where it says, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. In other words, 
pre-tribbers have the same problem here in Daniel 12 that they had in Matthew 24, which is the resurrection coming after the midpoint, after the great tribulation. Even a pre-tribulationalist will tell you that this line about a time of trouble since has never been since there was a nation till that time is uh, to be understood as the same thing that Jesus is saying in the Olivet Discourse, which uses very similar language to refer to the great tribulation. So they'll say, yeah, there's the great tribulation and you got the resurrection after that. And we as pre-tribbers know that the resurrection is actually before that. So this can't mean what it seems to have said here and in Matthew 24. So really to their shame, and I mean that in the strongest possible terms, they have created a new doctrine called the resurrection of the Old Testament saints. And in case that you think that I'm making this too strong of a point, read an article by Mr. Pretreb John F. Walverd called Contemporary Interpretive Problems, The Resurrection of Israel. In that article, they admit two important facts. Number one, this doctrine did not exist until Darby, and it was created specifically to deal with Daniel chapter 12 and another passage in Isaiah, which seems to suggest that the resurrection comes after the Great Tribulation. So, But they will admit that this is a brand new thing. Darby came up with it in order to specifically deal with the main passage, Daniel chapter 12, which seemed to have the resurrection after the Great Tribulation. I also want to make the point that John Walverd does not show anywhere in the Bible or claim that there is a place in the Bible where this Old Testament resurrection exists. In other words, it is inferred by Walverd that it must happen, you know, somewhere at the end of the 70th week, he guesses, but he doesn't actually point to a place and say, oh, here's the picture of this resurrection. He just says that it must occur. So now what this necessitates is them really changing accepted doctrine about how was David saved? Uh, was David a believer in Jesus? Was Abraham, did he really rejoice to see Jesus's day? What righteousness were they covered in? I mean, I know that Romans tells me that Abraham was actually saved by faith and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Well, whose righteousness was that? I mean, does he get some other righteousness besides Christ's righteousness? There's all these studies that you can do of the sacrifices and how they were really truly types and shadows, Colossians explains, of Jesus. They were all pointing towards Jesus and really they knew as they uh, were putting their hand on this lamb that was sacrificed that that poor innocent lamb was being killed for their sins. They they were being saved through faith in Christ, not because of some work in the, in the uh, sacrifice. But my point here is that they know it's bad doctrine because you can look at some of these sites that they may maintain that do other things besides prophecy, like got questions or just a pastor or a church that does exposition on a lot of different topics, not just pre-tribulationalism, but like ungot questions, if you ask on that site, how uh, were the Old Testament saints saved? They'll have a very doctrinally sound article about how they were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But then they also have an article that does basically an about face telling you how they didn't have the Holy Spirit and really it's not really the same thing. Therefore, they're getting resurrected at a different day. We don't know when that resurrection will happen, but we know because of Daniel uh, 12, which doesn't agree with our uh, rapture philosophy, that it must be a different resurrection. Anyway, I just mainly want to point out that this dubious doctrine, very close to heretical, is even admitted by pre-tribulationalists to not be anywhere in the early church. It's not able to be found in any other uh, place. It did come out of the Plymouth Brethren. It did come from Darby. It is a new thing and that they admit can't be found anywhere in the Bible. They don't point to any place where it happens. And they also admit that they came up with it because of these two passages in the Old Testament that made it sound like the resurrection is after the Great Tribulation. And they didn't really like that. So they came up with a doctrine. I mean, so, so this is really not a, a good thing.
Just a couple other miscellaneous things that some of you might have been thinking about as I've been going through a lot of this because there are some things that have just sort of glossed over but are important. One of them is in the one taken and another left passage in the Olivet Discourse, if anybody has ever tried to convince you that the one taken was taken for judgment, they are almost certainly using the previous parable about Noah to bolster that case. And you need to know that is an absolutely terrible argument. Uh, the argument basically goes that it says in that in the Noahic parable that uh, they were unaware until the flood came and took them all away. Well, it says that one will be taken and the other left, that word in English, took them all away. The flood came and took them all away. And it says here that the one is taken. So if the flood is a judgment, maybe the taken in verse 40, 40 and 41 are taken to judgment. Well, the, it completely falls apart when you don't use that particular English version. Most uh, newer English versions do have those being different words. For, for example, the ESV has swept away instead of took. They are completely different Greek words, and they have very specific meanings. In fact, positive and negative connotations that uh, Dr. Alan Kirshner points out in his article, a reply to Jeff Durbin's mishandling the left behind passage. It's actually a very thorough debunking of this. There are six really good arguments. Two of them have to do with the Greek words, but also the context. And I think that the context is even more uh, damning to this just being one, another example of a really terrible argument that they're basically throwing at this problem of the latter half of Matthew 24 and Matthew 25. Another thing I wanted to talk about is kind of an apologetic for this speaking of the resurrection, that is the just and the unjust in the same breath, speaking of the resurrection in summary form, because ultimately, if I'm right about my interpretation of the, the parable of the weeds or parable of the wheat and tares, then it's kind of one of those things where he's speaking of the resurrection in summary form, which I would go ahead and say uh, wouldn't be that big of a surprise since, as we've been saying, Jesus is quoting Daniel 12, which unambiguously is speaking of the resurrection in summary form. Again, Daniel says, uh, and many of those who uh, sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. That is definitely separated by a thousand years, but Daniel just sort of fast forwards through it and says it's, it's one thing. And I actually think that's what's in the kingdom parables there in Matthew 13, both that and the net are, are they're trying to talk about the kingdom in this sort of Danielic Old Testament way. And, and as I said before, you know how you would point to Daniel 2 if you're an Old Testament believer and say, yes, I believe in the resurrection. I believe in the resurrection of the just and unjust. It's actually uh, Paul in Acts that has a really interesting kind of apologetic for that as well. Um, because when he's talking to Felix at Caesarea, he's giving this uh, testimony that they're saying, you know, I'm part of some sect, but I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, so there will be, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And he's almost certainly referencing Daniel there, but the point I'm trying to make is that he's He's talking about it in one breath, and Paul probably knew the order of the of the resurrection. I don't know, maybe he did, um, but that it was, in other words, that it was a thousand years long. This is also something that you see uh, Jesus doing in other places. For example, in John five twenty eight through twenty nine, it says, 
marvel not at this, for the hour cometh in which all that are in the tomb shall hear his voice and shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of judgment. Nobody would argue there that that, that Jesus is talking about some new doctrine, maybe some part of the sheep and goat judgments, that they have to go and find something that where this is happening at the same time. But no, he's just speaking of the resurrection in summary form. You don't have to make a new doctrine out of this. This is just, we, John in Revelation is where we found out that this was actually a thousand year separated event. It was, a, I guess, you know, a progressive revelation in that sense. I don't know, maybe you can probably glean it from some of the other prophets, maybe Ezekiel or something too. Uh, but it's a little more obscure there. John, it's right there in black and white. That's why it's not a doctrine that anybody argues about. Well, uh, millennialists, I guess, but you know what I mean. Premillennialists don't argue about it. I know I mentioned earlier that I had one more argument to bolster the case that the wheat and tares parable is a reference to the resurrections, but I won't be going through that as I originally planned. I'm just going to point you to the article that I was basing it off of, and it's from a blog called The Orange Mailman, which I highly recommend. If you like this podcast, you will love the in-depth Bible prophecy research that goes on at the Orange Mailman blog. I think it's one of the best Bible prophecy blogs on the internet. Definitely go over there and subscribe to it. Uh, but this particular blog article is called Revelation 14, 14 through 16, Pictures of the Rapture. He makes a very compelling case. It is a long read, so... Uh, get some coffee, sit down, and see what you think of this take on Revelation 14, 14 through 16. It is fairly interesting. So I think I'm going to leave it here, but I do want to apologize. I know the last few podcasts have been just a little more dense than usual, and I know I haven't been explaining things as simply and making them as easy to understand as I uh, possibly can. It's partially because I'm really struggling to get this information in order and to order it in my own head to figure out what's going on. Quite frankly, this is a really difficult process trying to decode what's going on and these problems that have developed in this particular field over a while. And I feel like I got a lot of catch up to do. So forgive me for being a little bit scatterbrained in some of these. I hope uh, you can uh, get something out of it. Go to the website for show notes for this episode. I will link that article that I talked about, both the Orange Mailman article, also Alan's article, also John Walvard's article. So all the things I talked about, I'll link there in the show notes. Go to BibleProphecyTalk.com and we'll see you next time.